Well, take your Bibles, if you would, this morning, and turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, a text that will be familiar to most of you, and a text that uh, I preached actually a little bit last year, but as I was trying to think through the logical flow of how to communicate the presence of God. And for those of you visiting our church, it is our normal habit to just walk through books of the Bible. But we're taking a little season right now. We're trying to understand uh, this idea of God's presence. And uh, we are making progression, logical progression. And if you're following week after week, you hopefully will notice that. But this text needed to be next. This is a foundational text that we need to know as we're going to understand how God's presence works in our lives. I'll tell you, I, I really had an intention for this sermon today. I had a real kind of a heart and a spirit that I wanted to communicate. And I got down from the first service and I walked right over there and a lady came up to me and she just looked at me. She said, Pastor, my toes hurt this morning. I didn't really know what to say to that. I, I, and she just kind of left it hanging out there. My toes hurt this morning. I said, well, would, would you like me to pray for you? Like I, I can pray for toes. That's fine. There's, we can pray. And she goes, no, no, because your sermon, you stepped on my toes. I thought, oh, yeah. Uh, it really, in a sense, is not my, my heart to step on toes necessarily. Uh, my desire is to continue what I believe is a very important and very healthy transition that needs to take place in our church. It is a transition of motives. I want us to be a courageous passionate church. I want us to be evangelistic. I want the worship to be alive, all of those things. I also do not want to create another generation of Pharisees. I have no desire to do that. We have plenty of those and we don't need any more. The key to that is learning by the grace of God to motivate people, not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but out of desire and delight. That is subtle but very important transition that needs to take place. And God has stirred that in my heart even more in the last few days, and a lot of it because of my study of James 4.8 for a sermon two weeks ago. So two weeks ago I preached on draw near to me, James 4.8, and I will draw near to you. Now, to me, the, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. I just got to tell you what the Lord taught me as I was studying that I didn't share with you before. To me, the motivator in that is the last part. I will draw near to you. Draw near to me is kind of the simple part. The more complicated part is I will draw near to you. And I, I just stared at that for hours and thought about it and prayed through it and thought, what an unbelievable thought that God could come nearer to us, that we could know him more than we do right now, that we could sense his presence more. And I just began to pray, Lord, what does that mean that God would draw nearer to us? And so I began to just read. I got every book I could get. I, I pulled every commentary on James from my cabinet and I piled them all up and, and I just began to read. What is everyone saying about God drawing near to us? And what I realized after a couple of days is that they don't say much. If someone would write four pages on that verse, they would write three and a half on draw near to God and maybe a few paragraphs on he will draw near to you. Now, it could be because they don't know what to say to that. It could be because there is some mystery there. And it's not a way in which we often think that God could draw near to us. But I think there's something deeper there. I think the reason that there is so much written on the first part and not the second part 
is because it's just a really clear picture of the way in which we often try to motivate believers. I think it's, it's not an overstatement to say that that discovery of how much is said about drawing near to God and how little is said about God drawing near to us could maybe be a little bit of an indictment on the way in which we do church. And it is the reason in which we have a tendency to develop people who often tend to look more like Pharisees in that they're doing all the right things, but there's no real life inside of them. Because what we do is we tell them what they need to do, but we don't tell them the reward for doing it. We motivate out of guilt. We motivate out of duty. We don't motivate out of the promise of delight. In other words, the reason that anyone would have a disciplined effort to give themselves fully to drawing near to God is because they want God to draw near to them. That's the motivator. The motivator is, I have tasted and seen what it's like to have God near. I have had moments in my life when I have sensed that I'm in the presence of God. And I have had moments in which I've known what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. And I've had moments in which I've felt the joy and the life and the pleasure that there is in knowing God. And the reason I would draw near to Him is because I want more of that. I want that all the time. I want that as we sing day and night and night and day. I just want this to be this constant flow of God's presence into my life and then flowing out of me. And I fear that at times we might say, discipline yourself. Be obedient. Do what God says. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Just do it. And yet we have not motivated them out of a sense of why it's worth it. Think about that little story in Matthew 13, 44. Jesus tells a parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field and a man finds it. Listen, and out of joy, he sells everything. When's the last time out of joy, you sold everything? That does not seem to me like a joyful thing. I'm gonna sell everything. And he buys the treasure. Well, why? Because what happened is he believed that the treasure that was buried there was more valuable than anything else he had. And so if he had to trade everything in order to get the treasure, that was a no-brainer, and he did it out of joy. And Jesus says that's a picture of the kingdom of God. The way the kingdom of God is supposed to work in us is this, is that you see the surpassing value of Jesus, and you've gotten a little taste of life in Jesus and joy in Jesus, and what you've realized is that's better than anything else. And so then you would be willing to sacrifice. You would be willing to give up everything. You would even be willing to sell everything and move to Japan if God called you. Why? Because it's better. Because all you want is God and you want obedience to God. And so we have to motivate people. I have to learn how to motivate you the way God motivates us. Which is out of this glorious delight of walking in intimacy with the Lord at Jesus Christ. And every bit of duty is all because we want something better. And our text this morning really leads us in that direction. In John chapter 7, this passage is really, as I mentioned, foundational. What I mean is that you really can't understand God's presence without this. This passage is essential to our understanding of what God is doing and the way God is working in our lives. The context will be set in verse 1, and I'm going to kind of just tell you what's happening up until verse 37. It is this. Uh, there was a big festival that was going on, a big fall festival, the Festival of Booths or Tents. 
And Jesus' brothers asked him if he would go with them, but he said no. And the reason he said no is because in the midst of what is one of the most joyful occasions of the year, a massive fall festival, this huge celebration where everyone has come, there is an unusual tension in the air. And we know that because four times in John 7, it uses the word kill. And three times in John 7, it uses the word arrest. Well, that changes the festival a little bit when kill and arrest are in the air. That's not a normal part of your fall festival. I, I hope not. And so the atmosphere is one that the religious leaders putting on the festival are really anxious to kill Jesus. And they're really anxious to arrest him. And they're really hoping he comes to the festival. Because if they get him there, they can arrest him and, and kill him. And so Jesus has decided that his time has not yet come. And so he wouldn't go to the festival that year. And so... He leaves his brothers, he, uh, his brothers leave him and, and they go to the festival and just the whole feel of, of the city is, is one that's really incredible. This festival of booths or tents is really a celebration of the wilderness journey of God's people. So God delivered them from Egypt and he was leading them to the promised land. And what they were doing is exactly what God called them to do. Look back and remember how God sustained you in the wilderness. Because it reminds us that God continually sustains us. He sustained the people with the water that came out of the rock. He sustained them with the bread that came from heaven. He sustained them with the tents that they were able to live in. He sustained them with his presence, leading them by his presence, sustaining them, giving them joy in his presence. And they're just celebrating all that God has done as they've wandered through the desert leading to the promised land. And so everything about this festival is back to that. So every family would come and they would bring their own tent. And they would camp out outside of, of Jerusalem and they would all live in the tent and they would decorate their tent with fruits and all kinds of things that would remind them of God's provision for them. And then every day there'd be music and there would be dancing and there would be all of these kind of festivities. It's just a big fall festival. One of the things that would happen every day is there was this big, big procession that would happen at the beginning of the day. And so everyone would wake up and they would begin to hear music playing. And the streets would be filled with music and the priest would go take this big golden bowl. And he would grab it at the temple and he would walk through the streets while everyone is there. And there's musicians behind him. And he walks out of the city gate and they watch him do this. He goes and dips that bowl into a river. And then he walks back in the city gates and you can see the water sloshing from side to side. And then he walks all the way back while everyone watches into the temple and he pours the water out. It's a reminder of the fact that God has given water out of a rock. It was a, a reminder of the presence of God and it is also pointing forward to the day in which the spirit would come. On the last day of the feast, he would do the same thing, but make it a little bit more dramatic. It's the last day, a little bit more fanfare. So all the musicians were playing and he would walk through the streets and he would fill up the bucket. He would go back. But this time, as everyone watched and followed him to the temple, he would walk around the temple seven times. I mean, the altar seven times. So seven times around the altar. And then finally, after all of that and all the anticipation, he would pour out the water. And so a lot of this festivity is the reminder of the way in which God provided them water out of a rock. God sustained him with his, with his presence. Now, before you see what happens next, there's something you need to know about Jesus. And, and you, you might have known this because you've seen it happen a couple of times in his ministry. And it doesn't say the word here, but it's exactly what's happening. Jesus was a man filled with zeal. Zeal. He was filled with zeal. 
Now, zeal is the combination of three things together. And I believe God wants every Christian to have zeal. Uh, God desires us to do everything that we do with zeal. But let me tell you how zeal works. Zeal is knowledge of God combined with passion for God that then translates itself into action for God. So zeal begins in the mind. It really does. It's, it's because Apostle Paul says in, in Romans 1, they have zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge. So there are people that have zeal, but not in accordance with knowledge, which means it's not godly zeal. Zeal begins in the mind. You understand the truth. You come to know God's word, and then God fills your heart with passion. You start to get a fire in your heart because that word stirs up your heart. That's why we're a word church, because we believe that the word stirs up fire. And then if it's godly zeal, it doesn't just stay in the mind and the heart. It leads to doing something. So the one episode we have of Jesus where he had zeal is the twice that he overthrew the tables in the temple. And what does it say? It says that zeal for the father's house consumed him. So he walked into the temple and what he saw was a place that should be a place of prayer and worship of God. And instead it was a marketplace in which they were buying and selling things. So Jesus went thoughtfully and meticulously and carefully and patiently and made a whip. And then he took the whip back into the temple. He threw the whip around and then overthrew all the tables. That's like one moment I would have loved to have been there. That's, that's gotta be a great moment. I mean, there's animals going everywhere and Jesus is just literally throwing over the tables. And it says the disciples remembered that the Bible said zeal for his house would consume him. So he's just consumed with zeal. Now it does not say zeal in John seven, but what you see here is a picture of zeal. Because Jesus can't stay away. He knew that it might cost him his life, but he can't stay away. So it tells us in John 7 that through the middle of the week, Jesus decides to go. But he goes secretly. He doesn't tell anybody. And he begins to speak in the temple. And so he just talks a little bit. And he's not making a big deal out of it yet. He's just talking. He's just meeting with some people. But he doesn't do anything public. It would be foolish for him to do something public. But by the end of the week, as he watched the parade of the water going through the streets, and as he watched the people walk around the altar seven times and pour out the water, Zeal consumed Jesus and he could not be quiet any longer. With that in mind, look at what it says in that context in John 7, 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus, listen to this, stood up and cried out. There's nothing quiet about this. There's nothing subtle about this. He went most likely to the most prominent place he could where the most people were present and he did not say this quietly. He cried out. And here's what he said. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He stood up and cried out. And here's the reason he did is because the Lord had ordained that feast. The Lord had called them to have that feast, and that was great. Generation after generation of God's people were called to stop and to remember what God has done. Listen, it is good and right and holy to remember what God has done. But the reason Jesus could not be quiet any longer is because every single thing they were celebrating was ultimately pointing to him and fulfilled in him, and yet they were missing him. So Jesus could not contain this any longer. Jesus said, listen, I know you're thirsty for water. I'm the water that came out of the rock. 
I know you're hungry. I'm the manna that came down from heaven. I know you're longing for my presence. I am the presence of God in the flesh. You are missing me. Everything is pointing to me. Every story in the Old Testament was about me. Every symbol was about me. And you're missing me. And the reason Jesus could not contain himself any longer is because Jesus despises lifeless religious ritual. He does. He hates it. He hates it when we thoughtlessly just do religious things and we miss him. Jesus says you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. They're about me. And so the pursuit of reading the Bible without a pursuit of the person of God is not pleasing to the Lord. And it is so easy for us to get caught up in our religious ritual. We're just doing the things. We're doing the things. You know why? Because it could have been that somewhere in your journey, you were just taught to do the things. Read your Bible. Pray. Fast. Give. Come to church. Praise God. All of those things are great. But the motive... And that which is pleasing to the Lord is we do it because what we want is God himself. And the desire of our heart and the longing of our heart is God because we know that the only thing that can satisfy us is God. And so we pursue those things. Why? Because we believe by faith that Jesus is the only soul-satisfying reality. And I will give everything in order to have that. Jesus was not seeing that. And he often doesn't see it from us. And so he gives them both this invitation and a motivation. Do you see it? The invitation is in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The motivation, which we cannot forget, is then whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of, of living water. So let's, let's look at both parts of that. Let's look at the invitation for just a minute. It's simple. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can we just stop for just a minute at the word anyone? Can you write that down and circle that word, anyone? You know what that word means in the Greek? Anyone. I studied that this week. Spent about an hour on that. It means anyone. You say, well, Pastor, you don't know. You don't know. You don't know what I've done or what I've been through and the mistakes that I've made. You don't know how many times. I... Anyone. Anyone. Any age, any, any race, any gender, any nationality. Not just for the Jews, anyone. Listen to me. If you can hear my voice this morning, this invitation is for you. Anyone. What the enemy wants to do is he wants to accuse you because he's the accuser. And he wants you to think that there may be something you've done in your life that makes you not quite open to this invitation. And I want to say to you, the invitation begins with Jesus saying, anyone, anyone, anyone. But what about this? Anyone. Well, what about this? Anyone. Well, the Bible says this. Anyone. Well, he predestined according to the foundation. Anyone, I don't know anyone. I'm just saying Jesus started the invitation by saying anyone. But he broadens it even further. Anyone that thirsts. So now all of a sudden it's not just anyone, it's everyone. So you might say, well, I know it's anyone, but I don't need it. Well, you need it because everyone thirsts. You're thirsty. Everyone thirsts. There's a void inside of every human being. There's a longing inside of every human being. Every one of us thirst. Every one of us desires something. Every one of us think there's got to be more to life than this. Every one of us has a sense that I'm not fulfilled, that there's an emptiness. Every person has it. We think about the woman at the well. 
John chapter 4. Jesus meets her and, and he says, if you, knew who I, if you knew who I was, then you would ask me for living water and you would never thirst again. And she goes, I want that. I want that water. She doesn't even really fully understand what he's saying here. I want that. I would love that, that water where I don't have to come here and draw anymore from the well. I want to drink from that. And so Jesus says what could be interpreted as the cruelest thing Jesus could have ever said, go get your husband. And she said, truthfully, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, I know. You've had five. And the man you're sleeping with right now is not your husband. Jesus brings up the most humiliating part of this woman's life. Every one of us have it. Every one of us have something that we really don't want other people to know that we wouldn't let it to admit. Every one of us has some really embarrassing thing where if it was exposed this morning, we would be humiliated and she had it. The sad thing for her is hers was public. And there's five marriages and five divorces and, and then she's sleeping with someone else that's not her husband. And you say, why in the world would Jesus point that out? Because Jesus wanted her to realize that Although she's never seen it exactly like this, what she's trying to do is quench her thirst. And she really hoped husband number one was going to quench her thirst, and he didn't. And so she moved to husband number two, and, and she thought, oh, certainly he'll quench my thirst. And he didn't, and so she went to husband number three, and I don't know how, but he didn't either. And then husband number four, maybe this is an indictment on husbands, I don't know, but how many, I don't know. But uh, husband number four, he didn't do it either, and she would think by then, well, certainly number five. And she goes to number five, and he doesn't do it. And then she figures out, well, maybe the secret is I just got to stop marrying him. And just live with them. And so this next one she's got, she hasn't married, and she's just living with them. And so maybe it's not as embarrassing. And the reality is the reason she's gone through five husbands and she's with a sixth man is because she's really, really thirsty. I find it really easy to be hard on the woman at the well. Because she's had five divorces. I, I, I had a man in my previous church. He said four divorces. That was a lot. I, five's, five's a lot. I've never been anybody with five divorces. That's a lot of spouses. And I think it's easy because, because it's not your sin maybe. Like you haven't been through five spouses. And it's always easy to condemn someone else when it's not your sin. So I just think it's so easy to look at this lady and go, what a mess. What a disaster. Five husbands. You can't believe that big of a disaster. But I want you to hear me. Everyone in this room has five husbands. Everyone in this room has something that you go to in order to fill the void. Every one of you has something you go to when you're thirsty. For some of you, it could be approval. You just need approval all the time. You just need so much approval, so much approval. And when you don't get it, it's terrible and you crumble. But when you do get it, you feel so satisfied and full. But you're just desperate for approval. Maybe it's acceptance. You just need acceptance. You're, uh, maybe because of a deficiency of that and that kind of affirmation when you were young. You just, you just are longing for acceptance. So you will give yourself to anybody. You will say anything. You will make any sacrifices in order for a group of people to accept you. And then they will for a while. And for a brief moment, you'll feel great. And then you know what? They're not going to accept you for long. Maybe it's just buying things. Maybe just spending money, like you just got to buy stuff. Why? Because this thing's going to make you feel better. And it does for a little bit. And then you got to buy something else. And, and then you got to buy something else. Maybe it's a hobby and you're just pouring yourself into this hobby. Maybe it's a desire for success and you're giving yourself at school or whatever it is. I've got to be, if I just get that, if I could just attain to that. And what you will realize, hopefully, Lord willing, this morning and not before it's too late, is that there is none of those things. None of those things will ever quench your thirst. They just can't. We all have five husbands. 
And I don't know what it is for you, but there's something in your life that you go to when you're feeling so thirsty. And it, for a moment, it satisfies. For a moment, it makes you feel like everything's okay. But you know that it doesn't last. And the result is, just like five divorces, after every single moment, it just makes you feel worse and worse and worse. Everyone is thirsty. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Look at the next part of the invitation. Come to me. Because Jesus alone can, can satisfy the thirst. And so the woman at the well was thirsty for a long time, but now for the very first time, she was looking eye to eye at the one who could quench her thirst. And it's such an incredible, gracious moment of the Lord and, and that God would allow this woman to, to meet Jesus and, and that they would have this conversation and he would be able to expose all of her thirst and he would be able to say, listen, if you'll come drink from me, what a gracious moment and a kind moment. Let me say something, listen to me this morning. Every time God gives you any thirst for him, that's a really gracious gift of God. You can't orchestrate thirst. You can't create thirst for God. And God this morning wants to bring you into this face-to-face -face moment like he had with the woman at the well and say, listen, I know you're thirsty and I want to invite you to come to me. And that's a gracious gift of God. Think about David's heart cry in Psalm 42, one, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. Soul panting for God. In the same way our soul pants for whatever it is that you go to when you're thirsty. David saying, my soul pants for God. I want God, I long for God. I need the satisfaction that God can give. That kind of attitude is a gracious gift of God that he would put in your heart a longing and a desire for him. And so that is really important that God in his grace would give you some desire for him. And that part is on him, but this part is on you. Look at what it says and come to me and what? Come to me and say it and come to me and drink. The two of you that are looking at your Bibles, come to me and say it again. Come to me and drink. So, so the invitation is there, but that, that stirring up and desire is on God, but when he gives that desire, our response then matters because that's the way we'll be satisfied if we come and, and drink. You gotta know something very important because it confronts some really bad teaching that we might've heard along the way. The word drink there means the ongoing process of drinking, okay? That is not a one-time thing. You've gotta get that. that. That's critical to everything we're talking about. Continually drinking, 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 drink. Come to me and drink and drink again and again and again. Because somewhere, and Baptists are super guilty of this, we, we started to teach that you gotta make a decision for Jesus and then we taught them no other decisions after that. <laughs> Just make this decision for Jesus. And so we have a generation of people that walk the front and they pray to prayer and then that's it. But listen, Becoming a Christian is recognizing at one moment, and there has to be a moment, that, that you're thirsty and that only Jesus can satisfy, and that you're a sinner. And because of your sin, you're separated from God, but yet the only way you can get satisfaction is to get close to God. And Jesus came that you might get close to God. And so Jesus died to pay for your sins, to make a way that you might have his righteousness, and then you might approach God who is all satisfying. And so you trust Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you to save me from my sin. And I'm coming to you. I'm receiving your invitation. But the reason our mission statement is leading people to trust and follow Jesus is because we believe that that first moment 
has after it every other moment of your life continuing to do the same thing, trusting and following Jesus. You wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, only you can satisfy, so I come to you. And then that afternoon, you say, Jesus, only you can satisfy, and so I come to you. And then that night, you lay in bed and say, Jesus, only you can satisfy, I come to you. That first decision is the beginning of a million other decisions to come to Jesus. I don't know where we thought that we could take one drink. I'm good, I don't ever need a drink again. No, you just keep drinking. Come to me and, and drink. You say, well, what, is that? what does it mean? Like, how, practically, how do I drink? Well, I can think of a few ways. I think about we drink from the word of God. Matthew 4, Jesus says, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so we drink from the word. You cannot be drinking or be satisfied in Jesus without this. Everybody look at me right now. You got you to be in this. Please look at me. You got to be in this. You got to be in this. You can't be satisfied in Jesus without this. And the degree to which you're in this is the degree you'll be satisfied. You got to be in this. And this is another, listen, I don't want you to feel I have to read my Bible because of duty. I want you to think I have to read my Bible because I'm thirsty. And if I don't read my Bible today, I'm going to go quench my thirst on something stupid. And I'm not supposed to say stupid. We don't say stupid in our house. <laughs> something unsatisfying. Parents, forgive me. It just fit right there. Because it is. It's just a dumb thing to, to neglect this, these rivers of living water, and then go to something else. And you wonder why you keep going back to the same old things. Well, it may be because there's not a lot of time in this. His word and his work in John 4, that's another way. Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about when he's talking to the woman at the well. I am sustained by the work of God, by giving and by serving and by loving and when we're satisfying our thirst with something self-centered, the last thing we want to do is give to someone else. But oftentimes the way we break out of that is we choose to serve and to give and to love. So for a moment, it's not about me, it's about them. And that satisfies us in a way that we can't believe. So his word and his work, the biggest one is, is his spirit. How do you say that's the biggest one? Because that's the point of the text. Now this he said about the spirit. <laughs> He said this about the spirit. He, he said drinking is about, about the spirit. It is through the spirit of God that we experience God. It's through the spirit of God in which God comes to dwell inside of us. We are now the temples of God. I want you to think about this with me logically. Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. Now, the way we get drunk with wine is we drink a lot. And that is used there, not as a verse on not getting drunk. There's tons of verses on that, but that's not the point of Ephesians 5.18. It's a metaphor for how we get filled with the Spirit. So the way you get drunk is you drink a lot of wine, and the way you get filled with the Spirit is you drink a lot of the Spirit. That's the metaphor. So if you, if you were trying to get drunk, you would drink a lot, a lot, a lot. If you're trying to get filled with the Spirit, you would drink a lot, a lot, a lot. You would pursue it. You would consume it. You would go after it as hard as you possibly can. Why? Because you want to be filled with the Spirit. And I don't know when some of us got satisfied with a little dropper full of the Spirit of God. God wants you to have more than a dropper, more than a cup, and more than a pot. He, he wants your vision of the Spirit to be more like a hose that's turned on and it's flowing continuously and you can drink forever. That's the idea. College students, don't be satisfied with a dropper of the Spirit of God. Go after what Paul says in Ephesians 3.19, the fullness, that I might be filled with the fullness of God. That's the goal. 
So he says, go after the spirit that you might be filled with the spirit. The problem is that we have very thirsty souls and yet we drink very little. So he is inviting us to come that we might drink and that through his spirit we might be satisfied. But look at the motivation for that. Look at verse 38. Because whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he's saying, I want you to come and drink. Well, why do you want to come and drink? Because what's going to happen is this, is that as you come and drink from me through the word of God and the work and the spirit of God, seeking to be filled with the spirit, I'm going to pour my life into you. Now, what happens then is that I get a satisfied soul. So he pours his life into me. I'm satisfied. And then all of a sudden the mission of God is accomplished because flowing out of me are rivers of living water. Now, I've had five kids, and you would think I would have a thousand parenting principles, but I really don't. As a matter of fact, last year, Scott Moody asked me to teach a parenting class, and I wimped out like the week before. I, I just I don't know. I just, I, what do I know? But I've got a few principles. My number one principle is this, is the greatest effect you can have on your children is the overflow of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's my number one parenting principle. There is nothing that will impact your children more than the overflow of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Does that mean all of them are going to love Jesus? No, they're their own individual people. I'm just telling you the best chance you have is the overflow of your life. And so I believe parenting is the same principle as everything else. God has a vision for your life that looks like the Garden of Eden where he is pouring his life into you. And then that is overflowing to your neighbors and the nations and everyone is being able to drink from the overflow of what is coming out of your life. Do you realize how massive and glorious of a vision that is that you would be so filled with the spirit that everyone around you is being able to sense the spirit of God in you. That's exactly the vision he says. So you get satisfied and then your life has meaning and purpose because you're being used for his glory. I don't want any smaller vision for your life than that vision. Drinking from the presence of God, being satisfied and then overflowing from your life is more of God's presence. But it all begins with a woman at the well experience for every one of us. I'm thirsty. What I'm trying is not working. And I need Jesus. And I need him today and I need him tomorrow. And I need him tomorrow afternoon and I need him tomorrow night. Because our souls are gonna constantly be led back to that thing we've been drinking from for years. We just keep coming back to Jesus. Let me read you this last quote and I'll be done. A.W. Tozer wrote a book on the pursuit of God, which a good friend reminded me of this week. And here's how he concludes the first chapter. Listen to this. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied, may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they will never be necessary to his happiness. Imagine we're so satisfied in God, nothing else is necessary for our happiness. Or if he must see them go, all of our treasures, one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things he has in one, all satisfaction and all pleasure and all delight. So whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing for he now has it all in one. And he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. Oh God, the ability to see everything else as Paul did in Philippians 3 as lost compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, of knowing if I lost everything but had Jesus, I'd be fine. And here's the prayer he ends with, and it's the prayer I want to give us this morning. 
Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I've tasted it. I've tasted it. And I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. God, I need you to help me. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. I feel that so many times. Oh God, the triune God, I, listen to this phrase, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. So show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin a mercy in a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away with me. Then give me grace, Lord, to rise and to follow thee up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. In Jesus' name, amen, he says. I don't know what part of this resonates with you. It may be for the first time needing to come to Jesus. It may be saying, Lord, I'm thirsty. So would you satisfy me? Give me the grace to follow you. It may be this, Lord, I want to want you. I want to be thirsty for you. But all I know is this, an authentic, humble prayer to God gets us a long way in that journey and it begins right now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.